Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. This episode is sponsored by the Town of Sedgwick. Before I begin, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. Now this episode, I'm going to be looking at the town of Sedgwick, a wonderful little community near Edmonton. In this episode, I won't be going through a chronological order of the history of the community, but looking at various segments of its history. So, without further ado, let's begin. Indigenous History Prior to the arrival of the settlers who had found Sedgwick, the indigenous moved through the area, often following the bison. This would continue for centuries until Europeans began to move into the land, and the bison slowly started to disappear due to overhunting. The Homestead Act of 1871 opened up the land, and surveying began in the area. Here's Mayor Perry Robinson. A number, a few years ago, we had a, a blanket ceremony with the Musquatchies, First Nation people, out at Wetaskiwin there, or just outside of Wetaskiwin. Probably, like, Roy Louis, the, the elder who helped us with it, said it was the first time they'd ever done that many in, in 24 hours. We'd had a, we had a public one for adults the night before, and the next day we had it in the, high, in the school, right from grade 5, 6, and 7, well, was it 4, 5, and 6, 7, 8, and 9 in the high school. We had three different ones during that day. He said, we've never done that before. We, we several hundred people went through a blanket ceremony in Sedgwick and of course from there we became we talked about the things that we have in the greater area just involving the just involving the, the, the natives themselves and we have we have old prayer circles we have the rib stones north of us just it's within a 15 minute drive from us towards between Viking and Kinsella on the hill. There's these old rib stones that are up there. We went out there and we did a tobacco ceremony there in the spring. It was really quite, really quite enlightening culturally for us. And uh, we thought, you know, we realized the richness of the area and what we have around us that goes back long before the settlers were ever here. It's an ancient land in Treaty 6. 
One important aspect of the indigenous history in the area comes from the Manitou Stone, which is estimated to be 4.5 billion years old. At some point centuries ago, a fireball streaked through the sky and landed near Sedgwick, or what would one day be Sedgwick. The rock that had landed there would become a very important and sacred item for the indigenous. Called, and I will do my best to pronounce this, Papamiha Asini, or the Stone God. This 320-pound rock would hold great power for the indigenous of the area. When picked up and turned, the stone had a profile of a man's face, which the indigenous believed to be the face of the creator. Anytime an indigenous tribe moved through the area, they would stop at the stone and pay homage. The stone would become a pilgrimage spot for the indigenous, and this bothered the missionaries in the area during the 19th century. In 1866, missionaries took the stone from its spot and moved it to Ontario. It would eventually be sent to the Royal Alberta Museum in the early 1970s. When it was stolen, it was said by the indigenous that pestilence, war, and the death of the bison would come. Within two months, smallpox hit the Cree and the Blackfoot of the area, and by 1880, most of the bison were wiped out in the prairies. Work is ongoing to bring the stone back to the area. A First Nations college in northern Alberta is calling for the return of a sacred rock, which now sits in the Royal Alberta Museum, a rock that holds cultural and historical significance. Are they close to having that wish fulfilled? AP Chance Keith Labacan has that report. In the mid-1800s, an enormous fireball descended from above and lit up the entire night sky. Today, it is known as the Manitou Stone, which sits in the Royal Alberta Museum in Edmonton. That rock ensures that our livelihood is there. It ensures that our identity is strong. Since 1866, the rock has exchanged hands numerous times. Initially taken from First Nations by the United Church, then housed at Victoria University and returned to Alberta in 1972. Since that time, the Blue Quills College has expressed interest in reclaiming the rock and would like to see the stone repatriated. And so it's important and it's imperative that the rock comes back. We consulted with 40 First Nations in Alberta and Saskatchewan and First Nations organizations, asking them what should, where should the stone go and, and what was very clear to us as the elders, the elders were clear that the stone, the Manitou stone, belonged to all First Nations and it would be inappropriate to return it to just one. However, the college says they have obtained permission from a number of First Nations to act as future keepers and plans to build a future site that would restore the rock's power and integrity. Traits First Nations feel were lost along with the rock. Me speaking English to you right now is a signal that I'm not even thinking in my right mind. I'm thinking in Munya Mamtanetsugan. Moinia Gahkyo Nehio Mamtanetsugan me. But that's the way I should be thinking. Many First Nations believe the media resembles the face of the Creator. Bringing back the meteorite to native soil for many First Nations means bringing back their identity. It's a move the Royal Alberta Museum fully supports, but for now, it will act as the Manitou Stone steward until a suitable site is constructed. There was a slight majority interest in having it returned to, to its original site and housed in a dedicated, secure facility. But there was no agreement on how such a facility would be built or operated or, or maintained. So what was accepted 
is that the Royal Alberta Museum was, was seen as an appropriate steward or, or, or caretaker of the stone until there could be another solution. Blue Quills College is hopeful that the stone will be returned to its original roots and brought back into ceremony as it was intended. I think that some of our sacred icons need to be with us so that we can hold ceremony with them. And it, museums are places where uh, I believe that history is recorded and kept. But our, we're not a people of history, we're a people of the present. If the Manitou Stone is handed over to the college, their site will be open 24 hours a day and free to viewers. Keith Labucan, APTN National News, Edmonton. Here's Mayor Perry Robinson. It was a meteorite that was fell nearby here, and some old Scottish missionary stole it. <laughs> the, the natives kept going to the stone as their place of worship, and of course he didn't like that, so he loaded it up on a grain wagon and sent it down east somewhere. And of course, the, the history of it alone is quite convoluted and, and uh, controversial. The stone eventually came back. It now sits at the, the Royal Alberta Museum, sort of uh, tarp strapped to the wall with metal metal strapping. And we, we would, our vision was to someday see it come back out here in a, what do you call those places? Uh, historical points of interest, you know, where you'd have yeah. a building and an interpretive center. That's mm -hmm. what it is. Where you have this thing in there that could be protected and you could dedicate some land, you know, but that's all yet to be realized. Of course, there's a whole <laughs> world of people that you'd have to go through and convince them of your vision. Mm -hmm. And of course, the proper thing to do would be to dedicate that land to the native peoples, right? the founding of the community. As settlers began to arrive in the area, they needed a place to stay somewhere. This was common throughout communities in the prairies at the turn of the century, and the government responded by building immigration halls. One such hall was built in Sedgwick to provide a place for new arrivals to live. The building was divided into six to eight compartments that would house a family. Each room had a stall with a stove, beds, and some furnishings. The Sedgwick Immigration Hall would serve the new settlers for several years until it was burned to the ground accidentally. The community would be named for the Honourable Robert Sedgwick. Born in Aberdeen, Scotland on May 10, 1848, he came with his parents to Canada and would attend Dalhousie College in Halifax. In 1872, he was called to the Bar of Ontario and to the Bar in Nova Scotia in 1873. In 1888, he would become the Deputy Minister of Justice holding that position until 1893 when he became a judge on the Supreme Court of Canada. His friend and colleague, John Sparrow David Thompson, was Prime Minister when he appointed Sedgwick to the Supreme Court. Sedgwick would pass away in 1906, the same year that the hamlet of Sedgwick was born. The hamlet would eventually pop up before the railway came through, but there were good indications that the railroad would be arriving soon. Sedgwick was founded in early 1906, and by September, the railway was arriving in the community. The community obtained village status a year later, in February of 1907. Only a few years after Sedgwick was founded, the community was beginning to thrive. In 1909 alone, the community would see a creamery built, 13 houses, two elevators, a warehouse, a metal factory, and a public school. The building in that year amounted to $40,000, or nearly $1 million today. Unlike in other areas of the prairies, 
Sedgwick was unique in the use of ready-made farms created by the Canadian Pacific Railway. Each farm had a four-room house of framed construction already built, but with no insulation and the buildings were often made with inferior materials. Nonetheless, they also included a barn, a drilled well, and 50 acres under cultivation and a fence around the entire yard. The first of these farms opened up in 1911 and settlers began to arrive on them in Sedgwick soon after. Unlike many other communities, the founding of Sedgwick was relatively easy. There was no need to change the name, nor did the community have to move to reach the railroad. Here's Mayor Perry Robinson. With a lot of smaller communities, as the old old timers pass away, it gets harder and harder. Schools close and things like that. The grass was blown and the railroad was here and our people started to come here in the early 1900s. I, I knew people personally who, in my time here, who had emigrated here in the year 1904-1905 and just before the town was incorporated. And they raised kids and we've had enough industry and stuff like that, like around here that's been able to keep a lot of these earlier families here. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. Lake Sedgwick Once called Browns Lake, Lake Sedgwick is a small, shallow lake that covers 25 hectares near Sedgwick. It was formed as an old meltwater channel when the glaciers were melting 10,000 years ago and the land was opening up. A stopping spot for the indigenous, it would become an important source of water for the early community of Sedgwick, and then a popular recreational spot as the community grew. The Kinsmen and Kinnett organizations of the community would develop the lake with a picnic and camping area as well as spruce trees planted that grew quickly because of the high water table. Today, the lake boasts fishing, summer cottaging, camping, swimming, and much more for anyone to enjoy. The Merchants Bank of Canada Building Inside Sedgwick you will find the Merchants Bank of Canada, which is a two-story structure of cast stone concrete exterior walls. Built in 1910, Today it serves as an excellent example of an early cast stone concrete block construction. Prior to the First World War, most banks in Alberta's small communities were made of wood with flat roofs. The Merchants Bank of Canada in Sedgwick differs in several ways. 
most notably with the aforementioned cast stone concrete block superstructure. The cast stone blocks that make up the bank's structure were actually made from sand from Lake Sedgwick, produced by a local company. The first manager of the bank was J.L. Clark, who was also the president of the Board of Trade from 1908 to 1910, and he took up a homestead near the community. The bank operated as the Merchants Bank until 1921, when it merged with the Bank of Montreal. For the next 50 years, the Bank of Montreal operated out of the building, until moving into a modern building in 1976. The building was made of Provincial Historic Resource on June 24, 2009. Today, it is the home of the Sedgwick Archives and Gallery Museum. The Sedgwick Museum If you go to a rural community, your first stop, after getting some lunch, should be a visit to the local museums. I love local history, and I love local museums, because they offer so much history in them, and they're a great place to learn about the past. The Sedgwick Archives and Museum features many items from the past of the community, including books, photos, tools, clothing, and jewelry. The Sedgwick Archives Gallery and Museum was created on November 8, 1989, and the archives themselves are located in the same building as the museum. The museum hosts events and is open throughout the summer and by appointment. Here's Mayor Perry Robinson. I used to be the president of said museum for about four or five years, and uh, the Sedgwick Museum is a place that reposes of many of the old artifacts that we that we treasure in our area. And uh, but I'm also a fireman and. Way up above in the old attic of the fire department, I found a whole bunch of old boxes full of old town records from going back to the, the 1910s. And uh, in there are the day-to-day -day writings of an old town administrator that we had named Ernie Leah, who was a eloquent, well-educated man in the old school. Like his letters would read, I have yours of the 12th instant, and I'd like to respond accordingly. Those are the types of letters he would, he would read. Eh? Nobody <laughs> talks like that anymore. Eh? But when you read them, you find it. It's like reading uh, Tennyson or somebody, the way he writes. It's really fascinating. And, and of course, a lot of guys say, ah, I take him to the dump, and I started looking through this, and wow. Anyways, they're over at the museum now. I, I used to be a contractor in town, and I'm fixed a lot of the old buildings up while I'd be rooting around up there tearing stuff out getting ready to insulate or whatever I would find artifacts buried in under the old sawdust insulation and stuff as I was cleaning it out Barristow Brothers Mercantile for instance I found some of their old stamps from the early 1900s like Mills and Barristow uh, I, I've been People have given me medals of their ancestors, you know, having no ancestors of their own. They've given me their war medals and said, can you take care of these? Of course, they go to the museum. Goose Creek School. In Sedgwick, one of the first schools built after the founding of the community was Goose Creek School. The school was built in 1912 and was situated just southeast of the community on land owned by Wallace O'Brien, an original settler to the area. Along with being the centre for schooling, the school was also a place of worship for both the Anglican and Presbyterian congregations, and served as the Agricultural Society headquarters beginning in 1919. 
For almost 50 years, the school was the place where hundreds of students learned what they would need to be productive members of society. It was finally closed down in 1957, but that was not the end of the life for the school. It would be moved to Sedgwick after the Goose Creek Community Association donated the building to the Sedgwick Historical Society on August 1st, 2000. The building was moved thanks to a fundraising effort on July 26, 2005. For the official opening of the school, which was held during the centennial celebrations of the community on June 30, 2007, Alberta Lieutenant Governor Norman Kwong was on hand. Today, the school sits on the museum grounds and includes several items from the past of the community, including antiques from the period the school opened, as well as schoolroom desks, maps, and even a chalk-covered blackboard, giving a glimpse into the school's history from a century ago. Here's Mayor Perry Robinson. The Goose Creek School was situated several miles south of town. And uh, back in the, oh geez, I guess it'd be the 90s now, uh, the, the Historical Society wanted to save this school because it was one of the last few schools still left on the site that was in good condition. And we set it up on a, on a lot where there used to be a tire shop that was torn down and we got that lot and we put the Goose Creek School there. And we, it's set up inside as a school with all the old desks and all the artifacts that wouldn't fit in the regular museum. When we moved the Goose Creek School to town, we the old boiler was still in there and everything. I was a, a contractor time. I helped them out painting the inside of it. I painted the outside of it. And uh, in 19 or in 2007, uh, the Vice Regal, the Lieutenant Governor of Alberta, Normie Quam, he came uh, down here to dedicate it. And uh, it just so happened that I had, the, I was, I'm also the Sergeant at Arms of the Legion and I had the Legion colors that day, but we also were blessed with having the, the military uh, band, the, the brass band of the King's Own Calgary Regiment and the Loyal Edmonton Regiment came together that day and they were in the parade and with us to celebrate our centennial. And when Normie Quam came down to dedicate it. I asked these guys if they could go over there and they were delighted. So there was Normie Kwan standing there ready to give his speech and the, the old band of the Calgary and Edmonton regiments pipes up the vice regal salute. And he just, he looked up, <laughs> he was like, what the heck's going on here? And we had this nice large band and the Legion colors. And we really made a big do out of it. And I think, I think the honorable man was uh, quite taken aback with the pomp and circumstance that Sedgwick was able to throw together that day. Uh, we're very proud of the old Goose Creek School. Oil and gas. In Alberta, many communities have a strong connection to oil and gas. Even before the booms that happened in the latter part of the 20th century, oil and gas was something many rural communities relied upon even on a small scale. While Leduc No. 1 wouldn't strike oil until 1947 and kick-start the first major oil boom in Alberta, oil was being drilled in the Sedgwick area as early as 1920. Rather than having a huge steel derrick, as is common these days, the first oil derrick in the area was a wooden derrick. The drilling methods back then were also very different. 
they used a cable tool drilling method, which was before the rotary drilling procedure developed. In 1944, Imperial Oil drilled near Sedgwick in search of oil, followed by Voyageur Petroleum. In 1953, after the discovery of Leduc, the Trans-Canada Pipeline was built through the area and the real oil boom began for central Alberta. The Billy Rose Rink Every community has had important people come from it. They may be politicians, artists, or sports stars, but they are the pride of their community. For Sedgwick, Billy Rose is the person who helped put the community on the map on the national stage. On October 4, 1921, Sedgwick would form the Curling Rink Association, and the organization began work on a new covered curling rink for the community. By 1925, the rink was built and curlers from the area began to play there and hone their craft on the ice, including Billy Rose. Billy was born on April 11, 1904 in Minot, North Dakota, and Billy came with his family to Sedgwick at the young age of two. He was well known in the area for his ability with sports, playing on the baseball teams and on the tennis courts. As a child, he would crawl through the vents to get to the curling rink so he could curl when it was closed. Interestingly, he didn't get his first major championship in sports. It was in butter making. He was a butter maker at the Sedgwick Co-op Creamery in 1923, and he would work at 3 a.m. to ensure he could play baseball and in curling games later in the day. In 1927, he would win the World's Butter Review Championship for Mold and Yeast. In 1929, Rose began to enter competitive curling and would represent Northern Alberta four times and the province of Alberta twice at the Briar. He would finish as the runner-up in 1936 and would win the Briar, the Stanley Cup of Curling in Canada, in 1946. The win was only the fourth time Alberta had won the Briar and it would be the last time until 1954. With the Briar win, the community decided to invest in curling and work was done to improve the curling rink. A new ice-making facility was installed in the old building to that end. In 1980, Rose was inducted into the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame. He passed away in Edmonton on October 6, 1987. Brian Berg Another well-known athlete to come from the community was Brian Berg, who began his football career at Sedgwick High School, learning the fundamentals of the sport from his coach, Ken Yates. After high school, he would spend two years with the Edmonton Huskies where he earned all-star status for defensive end, allowing him to get scholarships to several universities. He would attend Augsburg College in Minneapolis and played football there for four years, setting a record with his 59-yard field goal kick. After his college career was done, he was drafted by the Saskatchewan Roughriders in the fourth round, 33rd overall, in the 1974 CFL Draft. Playing with the Rough Riders, he was a place kicker and did the kickoffs for the team, setting a league record for most consecutive converts for a season. Following his first season, he was released by the Rough Riders and picked up by the BC Lions, playing as their place kicker for the 1975 season. This was his last season in the CFL. Over the course of his career, he had 22 field goals in 39 attempts. Here's Mayor Perry Robinson. There's a number of reasons why Cedric's a... A lovely little town with a great history, uh, a forward view to the future. We have many amenities. We have a lot of recreational opportunities. We have uh, walking trails, a nine-hole golf course, a rec center, uh, a lake park that people can camp in. We have many uh, uh, 
well, now with COVID, but there's always a lot of sports and stuff going on around here. We have a lot of local attractions, historical, uh, but it's a nice town. And it's, uh, we've recently redone our main street. It's all good. We're business uh, downtown is uh, doing very well. We have a Flagstaff County does a market down there. And just as our first one the other day, we have a community wide market on our main street. And uh, it worked out really well. It's sort of designed not just to be a main street, but to be a place that you can uh, seal off the traffic and make just a walking promenade shopping arrangement. You know, you can have a band set up, you can sit down and talk. It's really kind of nice. You know, when I start, there's restaurants to eat in, there's uh, events that we, even with COVID, we still did our July 1st parade. We, we, we have the Flagstaff Scottish Club, you know, that does their uh, annual gathering of the clans. We bring a thousand plus people to town. And, and we have a lot of things that we like to do culturally and recreationally. Our, our, our motive is quality of life. It's our vision statement. And in a time where municipalities are constantly fighting with each other, scrambling over every scrap of funding and everything for industry and to get the grant funding and to get the industry to come and build here. We decided a number of years ago just to uh, adopt a, a vision statement of quality of life and make our place a, a place that people want to live in mm-hmm. and a place that people would, wherever you work, you'd like to live in Sedgwick. I hope you enjoyed that look at the community of Sedgwick and its history, and if you did, please give a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where I have hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Go to canadaehx.com. And you can support the podcast. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.